Here is a fashion mantra to live by. Quote, a dress is neither a tragedy nor a painting. It is a charming and ephemeral creation, not an everlasting work of art. Fashion should die, and die quickly, in order that commerce may survive. The more transient fashion is, the more perfect it is. You can't protect what is already dead. End quote. Those were the words of the most famous couturier, or dressmaker, of the early 20th century, Coco Chanel, a true titan. She rebuilt the foundation of female fashion in the Western world, all before women even had the right to vote. Coco Chanel came of age when women's dress and their behavior were constructed to complement a man's world, like background players on the world stage. But she denied the world of men by grabbing hold of one of its key pillars, the power of legacy. She understood the paradox of fashion, here today, gone tomorrow. If one wanted their name to last, they needed to build something more durable than a dress, more noticeable than a jewel, less ephemeral than a fragrance. They needed to build a myth. And Chanel understood that was just another word for brand. Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just tell you about women who change the face of business. We tell you how they change the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. We'll tell the life stories of 12 amazing women, how they rose to success and, in some cases, how they dealt with failure. Today, we'll focus on Coco Chanel and how she was able to build an iconic brand. New episodes of our 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Coco Chanel is the only fashion designer on Time's 100 Most Influential People of the 20th Century, and today her brand is valued at $18.5 billion. The Chanel handbag, originally released in 1929, has been reinterpreted and re-released again and again over the years, and its value only grows. Heritage Auctions began selling the expensive designer handbags in 2010. A year later, a red crocodile skin Hermes Birkin set a world record selling for more than $203,000. The previous record of just over $82,000 for a Birkin had been set by Christie's, which is planning another handbag auction in November. So what's all the fuss? It comes down to the quality and craftsmanship of the bags, say experts. Her little black dress was so simple and desirable, it became ubiquitous. And then there's the fragrance, Chanel Number no. 5. It's beautiful up here. Everything seems so peaceful. Who are you? I'm a dancer. <laughs> I love to dance. 
Chanel's mastery of fashion and sensibility was so great that it's still known by sight, touch, and scent. She designed for herself, and she designed herself from the bottom up. Out of all her strengths in business, it was Chanel's understanding of the power of branding. Her real legacy was left in the logo that came to define her business. Those dual capital C's, mirror images of one another, yet forever interlocked in embrace. It was stitched or etched into every product she ever sold. It communicated her business's mission statement and values through two simple initials. To trace the origins and power of this brand, there's no other way to begin than at the beginning of her life story. Chanel's iconic brand sprang from her lifestyle. In Chanel's words, quote, I was born on a journey, end quote. And yet, when her birth occurred in Saumur, Maine-et-Loire, France, on August 19, 1883, she couldn't even lay claim to the name that would one day be known around the world. Her mother was an unmarried laundrywoman named Eugenie Jean DeVol. Her father was a nomadic vendor called Albert Chanel, and he was out of town on business when Chanel was born. With neither parent around to correct it, the hospital registered the child's name as Gabrielle Chasnel. Perhaps this was the inherent and symbolic slight that started Coco on her journey to Chanel. She would spend the rest of her life making sure her name was never forgotten or misspelled again. Jean died by the time Gabrielle Chanel was 12 years old, and the irresponsible Albert shipped Chanel off to the French convent of Aubazine in 1895. It was spare, frugal living. She often wore the same simple clothes every day. She learned to sew such clothing with traditional technique. When she turned 18 in 1902, Chanel moved to a boarding house in Moulin, central France, where she continued to work by day as a seamstress. But by night, Chanel found herself in the town pavilion known as La Rotonde, she dreamed of a career as a poseuse, or singing performer. Her signature songs were Coco Rico and Kikavu Coco. The latter, a silly ditty about a girl looking for her lost dog, is the most likely source of the new name Chanel picked up, Coco. However, it was her personality and verve that garnered attention, not her voice. In 1906, this is what brought her to the attention of a former French cavalry officer. His name was Etienne Balzan. The heir to a wealthy textile business, Balzan spent his summer months romancing women in the countryside. He was taken with Coco, and she became his lover. The most important aspect of her relationship with Balzan is that Chanel entered the world of business without realizing it. They spent their days walking through serene woods and dining in Balzan's chateau with other high society figures. The connections she made here were the first building blocks of her network. 
The first and perhaps most important figure in her network was a friend of Balzan's. His name was Captain Arthur Edward Capel, but to friends, his name was simply Boy. Boy Capel was an Englishman. He was a more serious man than Balzan and held an attachment to the sartorial side of life. In 1908, a nine-year affair began between Chanel and Capel. While she had spent her time with Balzan as a spectator, she became an active participant in high society alongside Capel. They spent much of their time outdoors, horseback riding, hunting, and yachting. This is where Chanel's ideology about modern fashion began in earnest. Life was fast-paced. There was no time for maids to dress you in elaborate clothing. A woman needed to be ready for adventure at any time. This crystallized into the founding business principle of Chanel's business. She could create something to address her own frustrations. This, in turn, could then be amplified across a larger market. She already lived the life of a modern woman, engaged in both leisure and action. Who better to define what that could look like for all women? This was Chanel's genius hybrid: low and high culture coming together. The birth of the modern in the form of a peasant girl, all dressed up. She would begin with the head. Her attention to hats began because Capel and Chanel often attended the horse races together. Here's Chanel speaking of these crowds of ravenous fans. Quote, the women I saw at the races wore enormous loaves on their heads, constructions made of feathers and improved with fruits and plumes. But worst of all, which appalled me, their hats did not fit on their heads. This fashion wasn't logical. Her first business principle clicked into gear. There was a change needed in women's hats. This is a shared facet with many successful businesses from across history. Frustration is very close to another emotion, passion, and passion leads to a successful union between life and business. Entrepreneur Stedman Graham, the partner of Oprah Winfrey, made the following comments on the business show Between the Lines. Key to success is building a life around things that you really, really enjoy. Graham says he was pressured by his relationship with Oprah Winfrey to discover who he was and learn the one thing that successful people had in common was passion. Once you find something that you love, then you will work toward building something great out of that that you love. And then I looked at vision. I said, Well, most of these people have a vision of where they want to go. Then there's the plan, the goal, and how to organize. Graham presents tools in Build Your Own Life brand geared toward performance, results, excellence. Excellence. I was living out of my past. Now, when I made the transition, I began to live out of my imagination. Decades before Graham and Winfrey conquered the business world, Chanel followed a similar life strategy. Chanel altered perspective on her frustration, turned it into passion, and used the passion to find an opening for business, her business. Her networking had led her into a marketplace, and her keen eye had identified that this marketplace was missing something. This pattern recognition would be repeated throughout her career, but it all started with the millinery or hat shop, financed by Capel and founded at the address 21 Rue Cambon in Paris. 
The year was 1910, and the 27-year-old Chanel was finally in business. Chanel's hats were smaller than the current fashion, and they came down over the ears. Chanel herself wore her creations out and about. It wasn't a conscious act of marketing at first, but it became the working strategy that built her empire. This was her second emergent business principle, a new style of marketing based around personality and image. It was also the true beginning of her legendary branding skills. Chanel made sure her hats were directly associated with her personally. This was a brilliant tactic, as it bound her designs to her own status. If one rose, so would the other. Chanel's store became a talking point in town. She had successfully identified both a market, the upper class who spent time engaged in leisure activities, and a need for these citizens to have more comfortable and interesting clothes. When Parisian women witnessed Chanel wearing her own hats out and about, they would ask two key questions. Who is that woman? And where did she buy such a design? Again, this was the building block of Chanel's brand. She entered the public consciousness as both a businesswoman and a cultural figure. When the actress Gabrielle Dorzia wore Chanel's hats in the much-attended play Belle Amie in 1912, Chanel's design popularity skyrocketed within the fashion community. Dorzia's endorsement enhanced both the visibility of Chanel's products and of Chanel's cultural relevance. After effects of such a business model can still be seen today. One only has to look at the strategies of Instagram influencers. As an example, let's turn to another famous brand tied together with double C's, Coca-Cola. Without a doubt, Coca-Cola is one of the branding kings of modern-day marketing. Now, every two years, Coca-Cola spends a lot of money marketing through the Olympics. While they run their normal ads during the televised segments, by far their highest engagement arrives through their partnerships with star athletes such as American gymnast Simone Biles. Biles was identified by Coca-Cola because they knew she was a regular user of social media and loved engaging with her followers and fans. A post Biles made from the 2018 Winter Olympics featuring a Coca-Cola-clad bobsled netted the company a guaranteed half a million views. Coke, of course, is a corporate behemoth, but they know if they keep their company connected to the world on a human level, people will connect to their brand on a human level, too. This interlocking collaboration between celebrity and brand is just an evolved form of what Chanel practiced at the turn of the 1900s. As Dorzia and other actresses displayed her wares, she knew her business had reached an important inflection point. It was time to expand, to expand aggressively. With Boy Capel and Etienne Balzan still battling over her heart, Chanel decided to ask them to open their wallets, too. Chanel knew the men wouldn't see her complete vision. Quote, They had decided to give me a place where I could make my hats, the way they would have given me a toy, thinking, let's let her amuse herself. End quote. 
Yet Chanel didn't care if they couldn't perceive her higher-level strategy. All she needed was the funding. Chanel knew the best strategy for acquiring this cash infusion was to keep the pitch simple and direct. Save the complications for the rollout. Prove those complexities through the sales she knew would follow. Both men sponsored her first expansion in 1913, a store in Deauville, a seaside resort in France. Unbeknownst to her backers, this store would also include clothing. In many ways, this was the first true boutique of the century, meaning it was dedicated as a one-stop shop for everything a woman might need to appear fashionable. Here is Chanel's third business principle coming into shape. Convenience was key, even in prestigious luxury businesses. If your store didn't have it, another one would, so why not just carry it all? Again, this principle also focused in on the development of the Chanel brand. She wanted her name to be recognized with as many different products as possible. It would allow her both to expand her employee base and to expand the public sense of Chanel's style. She threaded her way to dominance with a unique fabric. Simple, hardy jersey fabric, most common in undergarments and sporting clothes for men. But Chanel glamorized it for a new generation. She chose this fabric for two very different reasons, a financial call and a marketing move. The financial call came through the historical context of the time. World War I raged. Many materials were scarce, but jersey fabric was cheap and plentiful. Though it was often difficult to work with, Chanel knew how to utilize such lower-class fabric through her time spent as a seamstress in the countryside of France. But the marketing decision was the greater business move. Jersey fabric perfectly fit her vision of a woman's style, freed from constraint. Women could wear these hunting, yachting, or at nurse and factory jobs. It was clothing that fully belonged to them and their needs. As Chanel said, quote, I cut jerseys for them from the sweaters the stable lads wore and from the knitted training garments that I wore myself. By the end of the first summer of the war, I had earned 200,000 gold francs. This success is yet again attributed to the growing strength of her brand. Every single thing that Chanel designed was predicated on her one overriding thesis. Women's fashion had to adapt for a new age. Chanel enlisted her sister Antoinette and her aunt Adrienne to parade up and down the main boulevards of Deauville as walking billboards, outfitted in her stunningly simple dresses and traveling suits, made up of a cardigan jacket and a pleated skirt. This is the same strategy that entrepreneurs like modern-day digital marketing millionaire Gary Vaynerchuk still utilize. Vaynerchuk advocates the following advice for any emerging brand's marketing strategy. The most important thing in seller-customer relations is building trust. But the marketing has to be smart. It has to be personal. And it can't look like you're desperately trying to sell someone something. Chanel didn't tell people her clothes were the best. She showed them. She placed them on valuable bodies, her own and other wealthy young women. 
These women went out into the world, and their happiness with the product inspired desire in others. This seems like passive marketing, but it proved to be aggressively successful for Chanel's business. By 1914, the 31-year-old Chanel's vision spread and integrated with the overall beliefs of the contemporary fashion industry. Only four years since its founding, Chanel's brand carried true weight. She continued to diversify as her creativity was egged on by the professional success. Hats, jackets, and sweaters, of course, but then there were more innovative designs, like her famed marinière or sailor's blouse, a striped shirt that resembled the casual wear of male sailors. Items like this were light years away from what women had been wearing just five years before, but they were accepted as the new standard. Chanel also saw an opening into the realm of accessory wear, specifically costume jewelry. Over the years, she had amassed a grand collection of jewels from suitors. However, at the time, it was seen as classless to wear expensive gems in public. Chanel conceptually altered the use of jewelry in common fashion. She also saw no need to limit jewels to the wealthiest of women. Inspired by her love of the stage, Chanel incorporated artificial jewelry into her designs. She often said, quote, "It's disgusting to walk around with millions around the neck because one happens to be rich. I only like fake jewelry because it's provocative." Chanel saw into the psychology of the times. Social mobility was increasing throughout the Western world. By blending the real and the fake, she broke down the barrier between reality and fantasy. Wearing Chanel, the unattainable was now within reach. In 1915, Capel helped Chanel open her second boutique in Biarritz, on the French-Spanish border. It held neutral status during the war, and was often populated by the wealthy exiles from both sides. It was also strategically positioned right across from a casino. By 1916, it was so lucrative that Chanel paid Capel's loan back in full. Coco Chanel was her own woman and businesswoman now, due to her second business principle. On the ground, image-based marketing, and her third, a focus on consumer convenience and choice. The boutiques in Deauville and Biarritz were breaking ground in marketing and sales technique, and Paris was clamoring for a similar upgrade to her original millinery on Rue Cambon. The industry took full notice of Chanel now. Her brand was undeniably in vogue. Magazine Harper's Bazaar wrote, quote, "The woman who hasn't at least one Chanel is hopelessly out of fashion. This season, the name Chanel is on the lips of every buyer." End quote. And in 1919, 36-year-old Chanel went the distance and was registered as an official couturière, the French term for a designer who makes clothes tailor-made for their customers. Her initial Parisian millinery was expanded to become the full Maison du Chanel on Rue Cambon in Paris. Maison or house is the designation given to a designer that has truly made an impact. 
This was the highest achievement in Chanel's life to date, even though her lover and former business financier Capel had married another woman. Their affair continued unabated. However, tragedy reached out and closed this door to personal happiness. In 1919, Capel died in a car crash. Twenty-five years later, she would admit to biographer Paul Morand that quote, "Capel's death was a terrible blow to me. In losing Capel, I lost everything. What followed was not a life of happiness. I have to say." End quote. There was nothing left for her. Nothing except for the Maison du Chanel. From this moment on. Her fashion would become her entire life, for better or for worse. Let's pause for a quick break. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. Instead, choose LinkedIn. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent, because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates. Ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. They rate LinkedIn jobs forty percent higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. If you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you're missing out. Go to LinkedIn.com/women and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com/women for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. And here's something else we think you'll like. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that is delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging, and made up of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and high-rated, trusted sources. Choose from three plans: classic, veggie, and family. Plus, with the simple recipes outlined on pictured, step-by-step instruction cards, you can feel confident in your cooking. There are even lots of one-pot recipes that require minimal cleanup, so you can spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping each week, and get that time back to do more of what you love. I made the no-fuss pesto chicken, and it was ready in under thirty minutes, so it was definitely no fuss. For thirty dollars off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com/women30 and enter the code Women30. That's HelloFresh.com/women30. Offer code Women30 for thirty dollars off your first week of HelloFresh. Now let's get back to the story. At this point in her life, Coco Chanel had never been to the opera before. That evening, as she prepared, her body was covered in white—a dress made just for her. The queen of couture in early 20th century France, in her own words, quote, "My hair, which came down below my waist, was done up round my head in three braids. All that mass set straight upon that thin body, it was crushing me to death." End quote. 
Chanel's preparation was nearly complete. She only needed hot water to wash her face. But the pipes weren't working. Chanel knelt down below the sink. She was still a country girl at heart. She knew exactly where to look to diagnose the problem. The pilot light was out. She didn't mind getting her hands dirty. She tried to reset the pilot with one turn, two turns, a third. Chanel reeled backwards, stumbling across the floor. When she stood to face herself again in the mirror, a new vision greeted her. Again, in her own words, quote, My white dress was covered in soot, and my hair, the less said, the better. I only had to wash my face again. I didn't use makeup, end quote. She was stripped to the bare essentials, as if she had just emerged from a journey through hell. And then she received divine inspiration. She said, quote, I took a pair of scissors and cut one braid off. The hair sprang out at once all round my face, end quote. As her biographer Justine Picardie would later relate, quote, Undaunted, she cut off the second braid and then told her maid to cut off the third. The maid began to cry, but the woman didn't care, or at least she said she didn't care about the loss of her hair or of the soot-stained white dress, end quote. She simply said, quote, I slipped on a black dress I had. What a marvelous thing, youth, end quote. When she strode into the opera house that evening, she stood distinct from the rest. With her hair short, her dress simple and stark, she looked like the future. With her own pair of scissors and a striking sense of confidence, Coco Chanel created the image of the modern woman in her bathroom. The style of Chanel's little black dress emerged from her own life. But as the little black dress emerged across the market in the early years of the 1920s, male critics railed against the design. Quote, No more bosom, no more stomach, no more rump. Feminine fashion of this moment in the 20th century will be baptized as lop off everything. End quote. Chanel ignored this. Soon enough, she received the support she deserved from a somewhat unexpected place. Bettina Ballard, a fresh editor at American Vogue, saw Chanel's masterpiece as it was. Vogue's praise lauded it equal to Henry Ford's automobile as a symbol of the 20th century. Ballard sanctioned it as a universal look that would never go out of style. So far, she hasn't been proven wrong. Next, Chanel sought a new type of freshness, a scent. She was sick to death of the heavy scents popular at the time. She saw room for the scent of a modern-day flapper, lively, free, and simple. It's Chanel's first business principle back in action. She took a frustration from her own life and envisioned fixing it for the world at large. In the early 1920s, Chanel came to know the perfumer, Ernest Beau. He came to her with 10 samples, labeled 1 to 5, and then 20 to 24. Chanel went down the line, one by one. 
She took in the scents he offered, but only one caught her attention. She breathed it in once again. Yes, she thought. Quote, It was what I was waiting for. A perfume like nothing else. A woman's perfume with the scent of a woman. End quote. It was a mixture of jasmine, rose, sandalwood, vanilla, and newly developed artificial aldehyde. Such artificial ingredients were not yet popularized. Many feared the strength would overwhelm the natural essences. Writer Chandler Burr speaks here about an interesting detail in Chanel's fateful decision. Some even claim that Beau's assistant mistakenly added too much aldehyde to the fifth sample, causing it to stand out from the rest. But to Chanel, it was perfect. Ounce Beau, I think, who was the chief perfumer, his assistant had put in five times too many aldehydes in one of these samples. It was sample number five. Coco Chanel picked it. She said, I love this. He smelled it, realized immediately that it was a mistake, and didn't say anything. And so Chanel number five is actually an incredible uh, mistake. Chanel's reasoning was simple. It had that hint of simple soap, of cleanliness. Next came the real work, sales. Her strategy of marketing remained the same. She would focus on how her scent was different than contemporary fragrances. Like her jewelry, it was a blend of the real and the artificial. Most importantly, though, it was Chanel. She knew that if she had a fragrance that was just different enough, her brand could carry it across the finish line. Once the public got wind that the famous couturière had brought her modern ideas into perfume, curiosity and brand dedication would drive the sales. Chanel returned to her eternally useful second business principle, viral marketing. One afternoon, she invited Beau to dine with her at a restaurant in the French Riviera. She took this sample, number five, along with her. She wore it on herself, and as women passed her by, she diffused the scent into the air. Women immediately took notice. Some stopped in their tracks and investigated with Chanel herself. What was that essence? Chanel continued this strategy by sending her employees out into the streets, into restaurants and cafes, and even into the changing rooms of other fashion houses. Not only would her employees wear the scent themselves, but they would spray into the air of their surroundings. Before people even knew what it was, Chanel's perfume had entered the atmosphere. It seems almost absurd, but it worked. The secretive and mysterious entrance of the fragrance into people's lives intrigued them and drew them in. It seemed exclusive. It seemed elusive. The psychology of the strategy proved itself to work on an even deeper level. People didn't even need to see Chanel to want Chanel anymore. That's how successful her brand had become. People would inevitably ask what that fresh scent was, and Chanel's employees would smile, put a hand on their shoulder, and invite them into the future of fragrance. Quote, Oh, that? It's Chanel, of course. As for the name, it was a classic Chanel decision. She had chosen Beau's fifth sample. Chanel had always loved that number. It connected to the pathways at the Aubazine congregation, 
paths that formed the shape of the number five, which in turn represented a pure, full ideal. There was more demand than Chanel knew what to do with, and this opened her business to a real vulnerability for the first time. In 1922, Théophile Bader, famed owner of a Parisian department store, introduced Chanel to two brothers, Pierre and Paul Vertemer, directors of the perfume and cosmetics house Bourgeois. The Vertemers were enchanted with Chanel No. 5, and Bader wanted it distributed in such numbers that he could carry it in his own stores. Chanel was wary of letting others touch her scent, but she didn't quite understand what she had created yet. It was only perfume, not her couture dresses. So along with the Verdemers, she created Parfum Chanel. The Verdemers would finance the production, marketing, and distribution in exchange for 70% of the profit. Chanel agreed to license her name for 10% of the stock and let the Verdemers take full control of her perfume. Soon enough, Chanel came to see this as the biggest mistake of her business career. It's important to look deeply into this moment of weakness. Chanel, so far, had been a master of both perception and branding. But by 1922, 12 years deep into business, Chanel's attention was spread thin. That was the downside of trying to conquer every facet of a market. Chanel could not realistically pay attention to every corner of her developing empire. Because the brand itself was her primary focus, details could get lost in the shuffle. She thought she could hand over managerial aspects of her business to others without losing that centralized control. Bader and the Vertemers were opportunistic. They saw the worth in Chanel's name, an example of her brand's power in itself. They knew they could get a piece of that name, and Chanel might welcome it. They pitched it as such. She could focus on expanding her brand, and they would be her foot soldiers. Chanel realized too late that her perception had finally failed her. She knew it was a great idea to create Chanel Number no. 5 in the first place, but she didn't know it was actually the most lucrative business move she would ever make. For once, Chanel's powers of prediction had revealed a blind spot. Partly out of anger at herself, Chanel came to resent Parfum Chanel and what it represented. For years, Chanel would only refer to Pierre Vertemer as, quote, the bandit who screwed me. She had allowed her name to be usurped, and she would never allow it to happen again. In both her professional and personal life, Chanel grew obsessed with control. Her biggest failing became a life lesson. She would extract value from this mistake. She kept her distance in personal relationships. She adopted a brutal, coldly efficient drive. Chanel partied and gossiped her way into the elite circle of European society, developing relationships with men like Winston Churchill, Edward, Prince of Wales, and the Duke of Westminster, Hugh Richard Arthur Grosvenor. Meanwhile, the House of Chanel had reached its highest levels yet. With over 4,000 employees, the new Chanel suit represented the peak of Chanel's professional clothing career. It was tweed and professional, 
created a comfortable neckline and left out stiffened shoulder pads, yet another break from contemporary style. Chanel also added pockets and a gross grain stay instead of an elaborate belt. She tested each suit on a model and made them mime climbing stairs or getting in and out of an automobile, be it the city bus or a fancy sports car. This was complemented with the first Chanel bag in 1929. The bag was made to be as convenient as the small packs soldiers carried in World War I, while the thin chain strap represented the Chatelain worn by the caretakers of the Aubazine orphanage. The initial burgundy color was carried over from Chanel's old convent uniform. Finally, the quilted pattern arrived as a flash of inspiration from the uniform jockeys wore in the horse races. It was a fusion of all of Chanel's greatest influences. 1925 was the year that Chanel finally solidified the logo for her champion brand. The overlapping C's, one facing forward, the other back. Perhaps Chanel designed it as a symbol of the past and future coming together, forever underneath her name. Chanel biographer Professor Rhonda Gerlich wrote, "Anyone quote knows there is some talismanic power in those C's. They confer a sense of limitless possibilities." End quote. That gets at the truth of all logo design. The power lies in the hidden psychology behind the symbols. According to expert graphic designer Martin Christie, shape arrives first in the potential customer's mind. Positive associations go along with circles and curves. Christie specifically ties the curved with the feminine. Research also suggests that rings within logos promote an idea of loyalty and endurance, as if the ringed logo was a wedding ring proposal to the market. With this research in mind, it's obvious that Chanel had an unconscious sense of all of this when she devised the House of Chanel's logo. She was making her own promise to the public: her brand was here to stay. Yet the world of fashion was fickle and fast-moving. A rival emerged in the form of Italian couturière Elsa Schiaparelli, who rose to fame off her avant-garde and surreal design elements. Chanel's ego took a hit. These designers didn't have to lay down the foundation that Chanel had needed to when her own career began. They could untether themselves completely from conventionality, and Schiaparelli did just that, exploring more risky design choices. Meanwhile, a labor dispute struck France in 1936, and many of her own workers struck out at Chanel, claiming they were mistreated and overworked by the chilly and removed queen of their empire. The world was changing again and slipping out of Chanel's so far masterful grasp. A huge conflict was about to shatter Chanel's Europe into a million pieces, and forever mar the Maison du Chanel with scandal. When you have a chance, be sure to check out one of Vanessa's other shows, Historical Figures. Thanks, Molly. 
Big lives, little known facts, great unknown stories hide inside history. And every other Wednesday, my friend Carter and I dig up what you don't know about the icons you do know. Like how Albert Einstein was a rebellious young man who infuriated his professors and struggled to find a job. Historical Figures brings history to life, telling unexpected anecdotes, describing the real personalities behind big names, and examining each individual's lasting impact on the world. Listen and subscribe to Historical Figures wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's get back to our story. As the war opened in 1939, Chanel announced that the House of Chanel was shuttering its doors. She did not think fashion was proper in a time of war, or at least that's what her public statement was. Privately, it may have been a more vicious attack against the workers she now viewed as disloyal following their strike in 1936. In 1940, when France fell to Nazi Germany, Coca Chanel did not flee. It seems that she had recently begun a new love affair with the German SS officer, Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. Dinklage housed her quite comfortably at the Hotel Ritz, alongside the Nazi leadership in Paris. It's impossible to ignore the elephant in the room. It is quite plausible that Chanel was both a passive and active Nazi collaborator. Her nationalist sympathies certainly aligned with their own, and there have always been rumors of her anti-Semitism. As the war came to an end, Chanel became rightfully concerned about the cost of an Allied victory. As her wartime biographer Hal Vaughn uncovered, Chanel had become deeply entangled with Nazi leadership in the waning years of the war, even egotistically proposing a plan to the head of the Reich's SS that involved Chanel herself negotiating peace with Winston Churchill. If such news came to light in post-war France, the Chanel brand could be irreparably damaged. Chanel had chosen the losing side, after all, and the atrocities of the Nazi regime would not be taken lightly. Yet, ironically enough, it was her iconic nature that spared Chanel in the end. Conflict between the Allies and Germany ended in 1945. When Chanel was interrogated by the Free French Purge Committee, Churchill himself came to her defense and got Chanel acquitted and cleared of all charges of collaboration. It's thought that Churchill covered for Chanel and other influential European figures in an attempt to hold the culture of the continent together. Destroying famed icons and leaders might disrupt the fragile peace that now reigned over Europe. Chanel knew her image and the brand that was tied to it could be easily ruined. So, she used it to her advantage. Chanel entered into a lawsuit against the Verdemers. Forbes summarized the Verdemers' problem concisely. Quote, A legal fight might illuminate Chanel's wartime activities and wreck her image and Pierre Verdemers' business. End quote. Thus, Chanel achieved one of the most significant victories ever won by a businesswoman. 
In May of 1947, she renegotiated the airtight contract between herself and Vertemer from 1922. Although she found herself in a weakened position within the public space, she knew that the Vertemers valued the exact same thing she did, the brand of Chanel. Without it, neither of them could make money, so she made the preservation of her brand, not herself, the focus of her negotiations. The Verdemers could not debate this logic. Despite holding every possible monetary lever in this partnership, they could not survive the loss of the Chanel brand. In the end, although Chanel would not regain full control of Parfum Chanel, she would receive all wartime profits from Chanel No. 5, equivalent to around $9 million in present valuation. Additionally, she would receive 2% of all worldwide sales from now on, equaling about $25 million a year. She then extracted a final indignity from Vertemer. For the rest of her life, he would pay for every living expense she incurred, including taxes. Morally questionable? 100%. However, it's also one of the most impressive business deals ever negotiated. At 64 years of age and 37 years after she first founded her company, Chanel went from a potential war criminal to one of the richest women in the world overnight. Her leverage was toxic, but she knew her business rival would have to follow her lead. No matter his own scruples, Vertemer could not let go of Chanel Number no. 5. From nothing but a fragrance, Chanel extracted a life's fortune, but her focus was her legacy. Despite her success with Parfum Chanel, her reputation and brand were marred by rumors of her wartime activities. World War II had emerged as a dividing line in the new century. When Chanel herself retreated to a villa in Switzerland and left France behind, some began to say that her fashion belonged in the first half of the century. All the house of Chanel had going for it now was its fragrance. The Chanel brand was beginning to fade away. The emergent style of female fashion in post-war France was called the New Look, and it was pioneered by a man named Christian Dior. The male perspective had made a loud return to female fashion. Many feminists saw the New Look as regressive. Chanel agreed. She venomously declared that, quote, only a man who never was intimate with a woman could design something that uncomfortable, end quote. Yet her pleas did nothing to alter Dior's ascent. Fully backed by Verdemer's funding, Chanel made the call. The Maison du Chanel would reopen its doors. The year was 1954. It was time for her comeback. She fought against the new look by creating new versions of the classic Chanel suit and an update on the Chanel bag called the 255 after the date of its conception. The biggest change to this famed carrying case? Chanel's infamous double C's were now dipped in gold plating to make her name shine even brighter. But even this didn't seem to be enough. 
That is, until help arrived from an unlikely source across the Atlantic. In America, Chanel's Nazi sympathies were totally unknown, and Bettina Ballard of American Vogue still worshipped the French fashion icon. When no one paid attention in Europe, American Vogue published spreads full of Chanel's updated designs, and in the 1950s, the House of Chanel found a new home. Following World War II, American women were going to work, and they needed to look the part. This was a mirror image of the early 20th century culture into which Chanel's brand had first emerged in Europe. The Chanel bag, the suit, the little black dress, and obviously Chanel number、no. five—they became the basis for American female fashion, as they had for European women decades earlier. Such brand redemption has a few modern parallels. For example, the story of Apple's rebirth. By 1997, the computer hardware company had fallen from grace. Its operating system wasn't as easy to use as Microsoft's, and it had fired its founding maverick, Steve Jobs. There was no forward mobility until Jobs returned to the company with a new idea. Apple would now be fully focused on the majority of the public who didn't yet own computers or even know that much about them. Take the performance level that's only been available on our five and six thousand dollar products, and bring it down into the sweet spot mid-range of our product line. Apple was now officially a consumer electronics company focused on bringing these devices to the widest possible audience. They would target the growing market of casual electronics users. People wanted a brand like Apple because it fit their conception of this technological revolution: friendly, pretty, easy to use, and most importantly, cool. All of this is to prove that Chanel's move overseas was not a retreat, but a brilliant change of course for the couturière and her fashion house. Sometimes, when it comes to keeping a brand alive, all that's needed is an audience update. What worked before can work again if it can be reconceived for a new generation. Chanel had completed the journey she began long ago as a child in the French countryside. Her brand had survived and thrived through personal crises, shifting market demands, and two world wars. It's easy to make the case that Chanel's contributions to female fashion. Were the most significant to have ever emerged. The male gaze was disregarded. Youth was embraced. Simplicity was key. Chanel once said, quote, "I have given women's bodies back their freedom. That body perspired in formal clothing, beneath the lacework, the corsets, the padding." To this day, male and female designers alike use Chanel's original black dress as a building block. Despite her own moral failures, Chanel's products and designs came from a place of equality. This is the ethos of Chanel's brand, not of the woman herself. That's why the ethos is still relevant today. She carefully crafted her brand's logo with a similar ethos. Chanel knew that logos would represent the modern capitalist mythology. 
so the logo and the name carried the story of her products. The name is what was whispered in the changing rooms of department stores as a fresh and thoroughly modern fragrance floated through the air. The name is what crossed rivers, mountains, and even the borders of warring countries and ideologies. The name is mythological. Even come 1971, in Chanel's final days at the age of 87, she never wavered. She knew that her death mattered little. It was, as she said earlier, fashion should die. But her brand had a different fate. Chanel herself died of an unknown illness on January 10, 1971. As she whiled away her final hours in bed at Hotel Ritz, Chanel prophesied that her brand would continue forever onward. Quote, May my legend prosper and thrive. I wish it a long and happy life. End quote. Her wish was granted. The House of Chanel lives on today, 109 years after Chanel founded it on Rue Cambon. There are over 310 locations spread across the world. Those unforgettable, interlocking seas still mark Coco Chanel's place in history. If they're savvy, the company knows it should never change the design. The seas encapsulate everything Chanel loved about her products and her vision. It's a story and a legend that never truly ends. Chanel, comforted by this, went out swinging. Her supposed last words, quote, You see, this is how you die. Or, as her everlasting brand still insists, this is how you live forever. Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings. Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Great Women of Business is written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson.